Hello and welcome to part two of our interview with Michael Weaver of Sun Super. Inflation is an important concept for private markets. Um, the current inflationary environment's, you know, a little bit strange in the sense you've got a lot of capital sitting in the market. So there was an early thought process that it has to come through quickly, but of course it hasn't really hit just yet. And part of the backdrop might be because of you know, concerns around international transport, etc. So travel rather. So where do you sit on the inflation debate? Yeah, we're not. Um, we're not someone who, you know, when we talk to Brian Parker, our chief economist, not someone who thinks that we're going to have breakout inflation over the next few years. Um, there is obviously some risk to that, but given where sort of wage inflation is, is sitting and sort of latency in a lot of different sectors, it's hard to see that it's going to be yeah, much of a breakout. Um, but it is the scenario analysis that we go through. So when we're thinking about different investments, it's, it's definitely a consideration. And particularly around the fixed income rates, because if inflation increases, the bond rate generally increase, that'll increase the, co the opportunity cost of money coming into private markets, but also increases the funding cost to be able to buy assets, which mm. is really important when we're considering it. So wage inflation is something you're closely monitoring by the sounds of it. Um, so are you looking for any, because you mentioned before there is a concern around where bond prices have been and where equity markets sort of are at the moment. So are you constantly looking for turning points in that scenario analysis you mentioned before? Are you thinking about being a contrarian play sort of fund? Yeah, not not particularly. It's. Um, it's easy to say you think you can be smarter than everyone else in the world, but there's a lot of smart people um, that work in this business. And so I think to say, you know, one of the questions you ask yourself is where our competitive edge is. And if we say smart partnering really makes sense for us and finding the best partners, where, do the, where will they have a competitive edge? Mm. I think that's something that we really focus on. And if you can find the right partner that's picking the right asset, good management team, that's something that we say, good quality assets will continue to perform mm. through cycles. And I guess that's that quality focus that a lot of, you know, we're not unique in that, but it's definitely something that you can do. Thinking that you can turn around a business that's had real challenges, that is definitely possible and you can probably have more upside from that, but then you've clearly got more downside risk. So it's something that would size appropriately yeah. given the risk return trade-off that you'd have. How do you see the, like recently we've seen Canadian funds coming to Australia and, you know, you mentioned before lower cost of capital potentially um, and look, competing for assets locally. How do you see and manage for the increasing global competitiveness amongst institutional investors for private market assets? Yeah, I think it's, an, um, it's been a phenomenon for a while. I think it'll continue that way even if bond rates go up. We believe that the shift towards infrastructure and real estate is going to continue. So um, we think people are still going to be willing to pay for those. So that's part of the analysis we have to do is saying, well, what price are we willing to pay for assets? And there'll be some times when you're in a competitive auction and you'll be outbid by a significant amount and you just have to say, well, that's just part and parcel of the world that we're working in. So if there can be something where your partner has access to something uh, or they've created an investment somehow because of a relationship with um, a counterparty um, for whatever reason, they can generally be better, um, better areas to spend your time on, both from a valuation perspective, but also an execution risk. Uh, so that sort of bilateral relationship can be quite good. Yeah, that last point's a good one because that could be an advantage if you're doing smart partnering as well. Um, so when we're, when we're talking about the assets you're looking at, you know, these longer term assets, potentially buy and hold as well, how do you then manage for concentration risks? 
Yeah, so we have um, diversification uh, considerations both at the asset class level but then at the overall fund level and so we have risk limits that we consider in, in each of those and so that's quite tightly uh, managed as well. Okay. So let's get into the evolution of investing. Um, we can't go past sort of talking about ESG for a little while and um, you mentioned the role of Richard Headley before and I know having spoken to Richard a few times that has been part of his focus in terms of unlocking some of the value in the assets. Um, do you think it's creating more opportunities, this sort of momentum uh, for the portfolio? Yeah, I'm not sure about more opportunities. I think for us, it's always been an integral part of what we've done. So Richard's um, definitely helped in that process over the last 18 months since he joined us. But Stuart Wilson has been head of responsible investment for us for 10 years. And every investment that we do, we actually run through an ESG filter to make sure that the different managers that we are considering uh, are considering ESG factors. Um, obviously very engaged with different things like proxy voting, etc., for the listed stocks that we have. So it's always been a part of what we do. Um, I think in terms of opportunities for the future, part of that might be energy transition. There might be other opportunities that, that come our way. Um, but yeah, not, not sort of precisely by itself. Um, We've focused a lot around the investing side of private markets, but what about the risk management side? Has that evolved in your opinion? Uh, absolutely. Investment risk is, while it's always been a focus, the larger you are, frankly, the more questions we're going to get, and as you would expect, and, and we do. And so we have increased the focus on investment risk. That's in Andrew Fisher's area for, to have an independent people look at different investments that we have and think about the overall portfolio and then what underlying risk factors do we have. So while we look at it on an asset basis and a portfolio basis from our perspective, we also look at it on an overall fund basis as well. But you do have a, a slightly new you know, risk committee inside Sun Super. Um, will that have a bearing on how you invest in private markets? I think less likely to have a bearing in terms of a overall um, into individual decisions. It's more of, well, let's ensure that the frameworks that we are operating under and the guidelines and the portfolio strategies, that they all make sense. And so from an overall portfolio level, that it all adds up to um, yeah, giving the outcomes that we're trying to achieve for members. In 2021, how do you rationalise or deal with the impacts of disclosure regimes or policy change? Yeah, I think it's just, a, it's just the nature of the business that we are working in. And if you don't um, like that sort of regulation and uh, political aspect of superannuation, then you're probably in the wrong industry. And so I think that that's something that we all need to be conscious of. Um, yeah, there's other people that are fo focused on the Your Super um, in, inside Sun Super. Um, RG97, there's some unintended consequences. It means things like buying a building which has large stamp duty impacts that'll have a cost, um, which is tax that, that you pay to the government um, and makes it harder to do something like that from a disclosure perspective because we're going to have limits as to how much um, we want to be paying that it gets disclosed as fees and costs and that's something that's in there. So yeah, I think um, that's one of the unintended consequences that both the industry and regulators need to be conscious of when they're setting different yeah, rules. Good example, that one. During the ERS environment, we talked a couple of times around valuation processes, given that sort of perfect storm that sort of eventuated. Has there been any permanent changes to how you value your real assets from that period of time? 
not permanent changes. Since that time, we did set up a valuation committee to more formalise how we reviewed it. We'd actually done that prior to COVID and um, it was very busy during the COVID time, just looking through the different assets that we have and how they should be valued and working with our managers to have significant inputs into what values should be there. And so most of that's back to, to normal now and there's no um, real sort of um, yeah, ongoing consequences There's of been that. been evolution from that. Definitely, the the market is very different to to um, you know. It's definitely evolved over the last sort of 10, 15 years as to how different assets get valued, and mm -hmm. so a lot of that was already in place. And people that we work with, um, they all understand the sort of constraints and uh, issues that we have, and so yeah, they're willing to work with us to solve issues. Um, one of the um, arguments or debates in the market at the moment is around superannuation's role in the nation building exercise and um, the superannuation industry has long argued as virtual being a critical supporter of the nation building projects. Um, government hasn't always agreed with this um, in terms of its necessary role to play. As a private markets manager, does superannuation deserve a role as a nation builder? Yeah, I think um, sometimes not I guess nation building will mean different things to different people. I see that significant pools of assets that yeah, different funds have will continue to be a significant supporter of the economy and jobs over time. They're one of the largest investors, obviously, on the Australian stock market, which is you know, creates pools of capital for people to go and grow businesses over time. Um, nation building projects as such, um, while they can often sound good in headlines, they're really hard to execute well. And so, you know, oftentimes we see government actually has a very good uh, ability to go and create those sort of nation building um, assets, if you like, and then significant institutional investors, whether they be super funds or large managers, can go and buy different assets and, and, um, and, and invest that way in things that are nation building. Different um, property projects, a lot of funds are large investors in property and we can you know, build property over time that, that makes sense, it creates jobs at the time and has an ongoing role for the environment here as well. So, as yeah, long as it's a return hurdle though. Yeah, but it's a risk return hurdle that we have to think about. We have members' best financial interests that we are considering and you know, um, development projects can sound great in theory but they can take a very long time to develop, they can cost a lot more than what you might think, and you don't get the same sort of risk return benefit. And we don't get as much money invested on day one as we might get from an, uh, an asset that's already existing that we can go and buy and have more certainty about what returns our members are going to receive. And so my final question was around the SunQ merger. It's going to create a $200 billion plus mega fund. What does that mega fund status mean to you? I think it just opens up more opportunities over the medium to long term earlier than they would have occurred otherwise. So while we expected to continue to grow and SunSuper at uh, the size that we are continuing to grow over five years, we'll get there within one year. And so how do you um, approach that? What changes would you make? Bringing teams together, um, there's obviously opportunities for us to be thinking differently in each of the portfolios that we have about what the future opportunities might be. And so being able to um, drive down fees and costs for members, continue to access great returns, being really focused on what is in the best financial interests of members on a risk return basis, thinking, of, thinking about that, 
that's um, what the team's excited about when we come to work each day and that's what we'll continue to be excited about. Michael Weaver, thank you so much for joining us on QV this morning. Thank you, Craig. That was Michael Weaver, the head of private markets at Sunsuper, who has been very generous with his time and also his experiences of running the private markets business at Sunsuper. Thank you for joining us.